welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Okay, yeah, my name is Jason. I'm a sexaholic in Indiana. Uh, my sobriety date is uh, February 14th of 2019, uh, which, uh, of course, yes, you probably noticed, is Valentine's Day. So uh, Valentine's Day is a difficult day for my wife, uh, even if it's uh, uh, kind of a positive day for me for certain. But um, uh, So, yeah, I wanted to share um, things that I've learned about um, myself and my own recovery. Um, I, I want to surrender my right to um, think too much about myself, um, positive or negative, um, to try to um, please anybody on the call, um, and to just um, just offer what um, hopefully God wants me to say um, as I struggle to uh, understand what he wants me to do. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I did a, um, a, uh, a shame inventory a few months ago, um, directed by my therapist. And um, as I wrote, uh, she, I had a whole list of things that I was shamed of. Some things were just, uh, I was just embarrassed by. Um, highly embarrassed by um, situations and events. Uh, but I wrote these things down and then I um, journaled on them four days or sometimes five days in a row. And uh, as I did that, I started to learn about each one of these events. And then I started to see uh, a pattern in my life that I had never seen in any other way. And so um, I see that my life has been fantastically futile. Um, fantastic as in fantasy, not, not excellent, not wonderful. Um, I've had some great things, but um, uh, a lot of fantasy in my life. Um, I was first introduced to fantasy um, and pornography. Of course, that was the vehicle of it. At about age six or seven, I was living in upstate New York. Um, I was bullied a lot. I was kind of a small kid bullied a lot, literally beaten up by the kids in the neighborhood. Even my best friends, I can remember each one of my best friends beating me up as well. So I think uh, I, I had a big mouth and um, I wouldn't back down and so forth. And, um, and so I was introduced by one of these neighborhood bullies to pornography. And I, he had me jump into a dumpster and pull out these magazines. And I looked at them and I didn't need to be told that these were the most wonderful things I had ever seen in my life. I wanted to possess them. I was only six or seven, uh, but I wanted those. I wanted, I wanted at least some of these pictures um, to, to keep in my drawer, to look at again. Uh, I didn't even know what I was really looking at, except that they were naked women and that there were some pictures of men and women, but I had no idea what was going on there. 
they were pictures of sex, but I had no idea what they were. Um, and my mom found them. Um, and then I realized, just as Roy Kay had, and so many of us um, realized, um, if I was going to have this fantasy continue or, or have these moments of indulgence, um, my, my mom was going to have to not know about that. Um, because obviously she was going to be a barrier to that. She believed that these women were sluts and these men were, I don't remember what word she used for them. <laughs> and, uh, but, um, that's kind of how it went. And I, I was, um, introduced by this bully, um, that in all other circumstances had chased me down and beaten me up. Um, but this kind of continued and I saw other things that would stimulate me. And, um, I, I lived in New York and I, like I said, I'd been beaten up a lot, bullied a lot. And we decided to move to Utah when I was 10 years old. Uh, and, um, my, um, I decided that I was done being bullied and I was going to change something about myself. I was going to have a bad reputation. I was going to be so, so, um, tough or, um, untouchable that uh, no one, no one would be able to bully me after that. Uh, but when I got to Utah, I told people that I wanted to get a bad reputation and I wanted to be perceived as, um, as physical and a little crazy and, um, ready to do anything. And, um, they thought that I was absolutely idiotic. They thought I was stupid. They, and so that was permission for them to tease me. And, uh, so I was teased. I was at the very bottom of the totem pole in my elementary school. Um, it completely backfired on me. So that was my first attempt to remake myself after my own fantasy image, this image that I thought would gain acceptance and this persona that I thought would work anyway. Um, so things progressed and, and maybe that's not so important. Um, the thing that I found though, is that as time progressed, I found that I could not talk to girls. Um, I was not only intimidated by pretty girls, but I was also just completely unaware of how to talk to them. And the funny thing is I had two sisters as well, still do, but, um, but they were not really girls to me, I suppose. And so I didn't know how to talk to girls. And so I imagined talking to girls and I even got to the point where I would call them on the phone, but I would walk right by them the next day in the hall at school and not even acknowledge them as if I were too cool to be, you know, bothered to make eye contact with anyone. Um, and, um, that's kind of how it went. Um, I, I had a fantasy in my mind about these girls. Um, I would, I would have fantasies about sex with them and so forth and would masturbate and so forth. But, um, but I could never talk to them. So th this fantasy in my life um, became very, uh, kind of very rich. Um, I never had a, uh, an imaginary friend, but I certainly had an imaginary life. Um, and uh, when I, I tried so hard in, in eighth grade, I decided that in seventh grade, I was kind of a nobody. <clears throat> so in eighth grade, I decided I'm going to be, if anybody here is uh, around my age, you'll uh, understand this, but I decided to uh, be a new waiver. 
so I changed the music I listened to. I started riding a skateboard everywhere, and my I bleached bleached the front of my hair and grew it out long, and um, and and I wore preppy clothes um, basically, and um, and and it basically worked. Um, I became one of the most popular kids in school, but it was short lived, and it was a very it was a very thin facade. Um, and, uh, I continued to, uh, to, um, have my sexual fantasies, but I also started doing drugs because those were the kids that actually would accept me. And, uh, at least on some surface level. And so I, I started doing drugs and I went in hot and heavy. I loved drugs from the very beginning and, uh, got into that. Um, and, uh, my life went downhill. Um, I started watching um, X-rated videos, so it it went from uh, still images to videos, and I mean that was absolute crack cocaine to me. And um, and uh, anyway, so I went through drug rehab when I was 18, and my life started becoming real. I had these fantasies about being this amazing drummer up on stage, thousands, hundreds of thousands of fans, and so forth. But then we get to this point where my fantasy has not worked and um, I'm in group therapy and they value honesty and genuine um, being genuine and so forth. And so um, drug rehab changed me and I had a real awakening, but the sex addiction, uh, the sex, sorry about that sex addiction continued. And, um, at that point, though, I started trying to not masturbate. I started trying to um, avoid pornography and those kinds of things. So um, I, I got sober at that time from drugs and alcohol, and I stayed sober. And I worked at the drug rehab for the next 10 years after rehab, and um, it really shaped my life. I wanted to help people. I, I went to school and became a music therapist. Um, I got married to someone also who was into that kind of stuff. Um, I served a mission for my church. Um, so I was sober and I believed in the 12 step recovery model and it had saved my life. But my sex addiction, which I thought was just a small problem because after all, I'm living a moral upstanding service, um, oriented life. Uh, and, and I'm doing all these wonderful things in my church. I just happen to have these problems every once in a while that causes me a problem, uh, such as masturbation and pornography, essentially. And, um, and um, I had a tight, tight hold on those things. There were certain things I would never do. I would never act out with another person because that would cause me major problems in my religious experience. I might be excommunicated from my church or I might be disciplined in some other way that would be embarrassing. People would know. And um, so I, I, I kept real tight hold on that. Um, and and it, uh, it didn't mean that I wasn't progressing in my disease, but it meant that the pressure was building up. Um, and eventually, um, eventually I talked to my church leader and, and told him what was going on. And, um, and, uh, he, he told me, I, I need you to start going to 12 step meetings because this is looking like a pattern. Um, 
and the problem is that I had always viewed each each occurrence of acting out as a standalone kind of occurrence because I would go and talk to my church leader. I'd pray. I'd feel forgiven. I'd feel on top of the world. I'd feel clean as, you know, clean, white, clean as the white as the driven snow. (laughs) Anyway, I'd feel clean and pure and all that. And uh, because I was honest, or at least I was genuine in my desire to stop, but it was just one more occurrence in the midst of this um, pattern that was getting worse and worse. And so I, I really didn't uh, see that, and I didn't want to look at that. But this, this uh, church leader told me to start doing this, so I started going. I went to one meeting, and I knew I had come home. Um, I remembered all the AA meetings, NACA meetings I used to attend, you know, 30 years previously, and, um, and I knew that this was the solution. And so I started sharing and started talking, and I stopped worrying about what other people were thinking, and it started getting genuine for me. And things were going well. Um, but we, uh, we moved from Utah where there were a lot of meetings, and I started getting into SA as well. Um, but um, we, we moved to Indiana where there was only one meeting a, a week <clears throat> in this area. And... Um, that was a real problem because I didn't want to accept the fact that I needed to do phone meetings and that I needed to go to AA meetings and so forth. Um, and I found myself in difficulties with my job. They were going to, they were going to let me go. And, um, you know, so I, I, I was not getting much recovery in and I started working tons of overtime trying to satisfy this this um, boss of mine and it really wasn't very reasonable but this is what I I decided do or die I'm going to keep this job because I've just moved my whole family out to Indiana and this job has to work so I did that and then despite all that effort I still lost that job and I could see that it was really not going to work anyway Um, but I had started really sliding into more and more white knuckling. Um, I was going to fewer meetings. I wasn't looking at myself honestly. I was starting to get really irritable with my wife and kids. I was starting to yell more and start started to nitpick what they were doing and the fact that the house wasn't clean and all these kinds of things. Um, and then I, in uh, 2018, uh, late 2018, I started, re- well, I guess it was mid, I started relapsing. Um, and I thought, oh, it's just, I just need to tweak this a little bit. And, uh, but, um, then I would relapse again. Uh, and then I was just in relapse. So I was in relapse, masturbation pornography for six months. And, um, during that time I inappropriately touched my daughter because I tried to white knuckle my way through a whole night of lust, temptation, I refused to get up and call anybody or work what, you know, do what I should have done. And, um, I did that. And, and then I just decided to forget it. Um, but what I did was I did get a different sponsor. It was real tough. And he told me what to do. And I did it because I knew I had to get this thing out of my own hands. And so I surrendered to the process. I surrendered to my uh, new sponsor and I surrendered to God and, 
um, there was a real change again. I really started changing again, started getting sober. And about seven months into sobriety, this is in September of 2019, um, I started feeling like, yeah, you remember that thing that you did, that you touched your daughter, um, you really need to um, tell your church leader about this and you need to get this out in the open. And I was like, are you kidding me? They could arrest me for that. I could go to prison for that. You know, it may have been a very brief um, kind of a thing, but I definitely knew that I had crossed a line and I didn't know what the laws were, but I was really afraid. But the more I thought about it, the less willing I was to do something about it. So, um, when I, I prayed one more time and when I knew that God wanted me to do that, I just felt it was the right thing to do, that I needed to do it. I decided I need to stop thinking about this or I'm not going to do it. So I stopped thinking about it. I pulled out my phone and I texted my, my bishop, my uh, church leader, and let him know I needed to meet with him today or tomorrow. I met with him the next day and told him, and I told him, look, you probably have to report this. Don't don't hesitate. Go ahead and do that. And, um, and just let me know so I can go turn myself in if that's okay. And he said, yeah, that sounds good. And we'll just, I'll, I'll check with my superiors and find out what we need to do. Um, and then the next day I knew that um, I needed to tell my wife. So I told her the next day. Um, and long story short, a week later, I was arrested late at night, well, 1030 at night on a weekend. Police came to the door. There were cop cars all over the lawn. Um, it was a big to-do, and, um, and uh, I won't go into all of that. But I will say I felt peace being in jail for the 36 hours I was in there. Um, but um, because I knew I had done what God wanted me to do, and it was a really scary thing, and nevertheless, I did it, um, but when I called after 24 hours, I called my wife um, to start checking on, you know, how to post bail and everything. Um, she said that kids had been taken away and that they had looked at her and decided that she had been complicit in what I had done and that she, um, that she was unfit as a mother. And yeah, and that just um, destroyed me. <laughs> I, um, I'm, there I am sitting in the drunk tank with all these other, um, people that are there and, um, just bawling. And, um, um, I just, I was confused by that because my wife is a great, great mother. And, um, anyway, so that was, even though, even though I was sober for seven months, that was my bottom in a lot of ways. That was my bottom. Because for the first time, I saw absolutely clearly how my selfishness, my unwillingness to work the program, my, um, my behavior and my thoughts that led to my behavior, that those things um, directly affected uh, my, my wife and my family. And uh, it, it wasn't over then. They did get to go home pretty soon after that in fact in record time, just within a few days, God really stepped in on that. But, um, but the next eight months I couldn't be at home. It was a really rough time. 
And I'm still dealing with that stuff. I'm still on probation. I still see the probation officer. I'm still, you know, doing that stuff. But um, um, so what is my program like now? Um, that's what started it. Um, I can say without any hesitation that in that situation and since then, um, I was in God's hands, my higher power, um, and I was shown such mercy and such love during that time that um, there is absolutely nothing I won't do for my higher power. If he asks me to do it, I'll do it. Because I was absolutely destroyed. I was absolutely um, without hope. And, um, and he, he told me that, um, or, you know, he told me, right, I, I don't hear the word, you know, the voice of God or anything, but he, I, I felt, I felt sure that, um, that uh, this was all an experience that um, he wanted um, to help me to change and my family to improve. And it, it basically ripped my family apart, and then um, and then we have rebuilt me and the rest of the family, and I'm still doing that. So what do I do? I I hit um, I hit several meetings a week. Um, I don't think about it that way though. I, I just hit a meeting every day that I can. Um, a lot of them are phone meetings. Most of them are phone meetings. I've got one face to face in town that I go to. Um, I engage in service work. I've got sponsees and I listen to them and I remember and I try to be patient, although I give way too much advice, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, they have a lot of patience with me, but you know what? You know what? Um, my spot, I've, I've really learned that my sponsees, if they, if they have surrendered completely to the program and if they're willing to go to any lengths, it does not take a very good sponsor <laughs> to help them in that process. Um, and I don't think I've been a really great sponsor sometimes. Um, you know, so, um, and then if they're not willing, uh, all my best advice, my best thinking, my best prayers, all, everything I can do for them is not enough. Um, they have to do it. Um, anyway, so yeah, I go to a lot of meetings. Um, and just incidentally, or, or kind of along these lines, um, just uh, a, a few, well, I guess it was about a month ago, my parents-in-law, you know, they got plenty of money. My wife is an only child, so they, uh, they, they spend it on us. So they took us to Florida, you know, and we go to the, you know, Disney and, and uh, Universal. And there were, it was like going to the beach. I mean, there were beautiful women everywhere, everywhere. And I decided I do not want to have an empty experience with my family and my parents-in-law here in this wonderful place with all these great things to do and see. Um, but if I let myself look at the women around me, there's no way I can do that without lusting from going to, from one lust hit to another constantly. So I decided I'm simply not going to look. And so, um, you know, you can't fully do that, but I did as much as I could. So when I did see someone that was triggering, I immediately surrendered it. I let it go. Um, 
and, um, and, and I didn't drink it in. And even though I saw lots of women that were triggering, uh, it's not their fault, by the way. They're people, and I decided to turn them into objects and body parts. That's my fault. It's not their fault. No matter what they like to wear, it's my fault. It's my deal. Um, but if I didn't drink them in, it didn't stay with me. It didn't attach itself to me. It, it just kind of rolled off like, like water off a duck or, you know, um, it was really a wonderful thing. And I realized this is how I'm going to gain um, victory over lust. I'm going to let go of it before I look, like it says in the white book, before I turn my head and drink, I surrender it. And I pray for these women. And, and uh, I, you know, someday I'll be able to look at everybody in the eye and see everybody as a person. Some days I can do that pretty well. Um, but some days I can't. And so I look at the ground, I take off my glasses. So everybody's a little fuzzy. Um, those are the kinds of things that I do today and I'm still working on things. I'm still working on my shame. I'm still working on my, um, I'm working on my, uh, fear, uh, fear to let, um, happiness and joy into my life because I feel like if I let go, I'm going to. I'm going to slip back into complacency and slip back into white knuckling and, and then relapse. And I don't want that and I can't afford that. But, um, so that's what I'm working on. Um, I'm sober. I'm really sober and lust is not a significant problem in my life today, but life is a significant problem in my life today. And some of it is futile and I'm just learning. And some of it, there's still fantasy. I still go to fantasy land uh, on some things. Um, anyway, I, uh, with that, I'll, I'll turn the time back over to Rena. Um, thanks for letting me share my story. Okay. Everyone, that was Jason in Indiana sharing his story today and focusing on fantasy and futility, the futility that brings. So thank you so much for being brave and sharing everything that you did with our call today. And now just a little bit of housekeeping before we go into the Q&A. In participation, we avoid topics that can lead to dissension or distraction. We also avoid explicit sexual descriptions and sexually abusive language. The emphasis is on honesty, recovery, and healing, how to apply the 12 steps and traditions in our daily lives. No crosstalk, please, which means interrupting, giving advice, or criticizing someone else's share. If you feel someone is getting too explicit, you may so signify by saying my hand is raised, at which point I will consult a group conscience. All right, so we have quite a few people on the call today, so please be brief with your questions. Uh, please press star six to unmute yourself, state your name and location, and ask Jason in Indiana your question. Would like to be first? Uh, I'd like to be first. Is my voice clear? Yeah. Your name, please? Thank you, Rina. This is Noran, recovering sexaholic from Egypt. Uh, I want to ask Nora. you, Jason, um, I'm, I'm in the very beginning of my sobriety and I'm working on a SIP one and I just, it seems like I'm, I'm afraid of sobriety. I mean, what else could bring me this, 
this amount of joy and happiness and this refuge when, when I feel disturbed or when I feel sad or when I feel whatever. What else is, I mean, is life in sobriety a happy life? What, was your, um, what were your coping mechanisms? With, um, you said that life now is the problem and, and when I achieved some period of sobriety, I faced that, I faced that life is the problem and I couldn't deal with, with life by its conditions, so I, I relaxed. So how did you cope with life difficulties and what else bring you joy in a life described as sober life? Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I, I, I think I tend to focus on the problem or on my weaknesses because I need to lead with my weaknesses um, today because I, um, I've so long um, not looked at my weaknesses and not wanted to acknowledge them. But, um, but I, what you're asking is, is excellent because, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to be sober. Um, I live a life that is, yeah, yeah I check in with my, my uh, uh, probation officer, but he trusts me, which I think is kind of insane, really. And I, you know, I don't expect it, but he trusts me and he can see that, um, that I'm proactive and I'm working on my own issues without his having to say a word really. And, um, I'm free, uh, working recovery, um, working the steps. I've worked all 12 steps and I'm, I'm maintaining with, you know, maintaining and, and growing with 10, 11 and 12. Um, and like I said, I did a shame inventory, which was very enlightening. Um, I, I see my own brokenness uh, more and more in different ways, but I also have hope because I also can see that I'm so much more free from lust. Uh, I'm not captive to whoever is walking by. I'm not captive to memories. Um, and uh, yeah, what do I use? I, I surrender all the time. And I also pray a lot. Um, sometimes I surrender to God. Sometimes I surrender to somebody else on the phone. Sometimes I um, pray for the people that I see if, they're, if I feel like they're staying in my mind a little bit. Um, and, and I notice um, triggers around me, but I'm not, I'm not um, enslaved by them. I'm free. And I have space now. Uh, I have space uh, emotionally to be able to listen to what my wife says to me because I've hurt her for so many years, not even wanting to or intending to, but I have space emotionally because my stall has been mucked out. You know, I, I've shoveled all the, all the crap out of my stall, you know, in steps uh, four and five, and I've let it go and, you know, in, in the steps after that, tried to make it right. And so my stall is relatively clean. And I just go in there and try to clean things out. But when my wife comes back in and, and she talks about how I've hurt her or how I've been wrong for years, um, I can listen and I can realize that um, she's just hurting and I'm the best person to help her. Um, and that's a wonderful gift. Absolutely wonderful. I hope that answers your question. This is Thank Jim you. from Indiana. I have a question. 
Go ahead, Jim, in Indiana. Um, all right. Um, and number one, uh, thank you for the share. Um, and I have a two-part question. I'll make it brief. Um, first, uh, first part of my question is, when when you speak of showing empathy um, to your wife, your family, to others, is there a point in your recovery that you begin to show empathy towards your shit self, begin to be gentle on yourself for what you've done? And number two is, would there be a way for you, would you be willing to share your phone number for an outreach call? Um, thank you. Yeah, thank so you very much. Note, um, uh, oh, yes. We don't we don't put uh, phone numbers in the recording, but um, that's definitely something you can do uh, once the recording is paused or um, you can email in for that. And if it's okay for me to give Jason your number, I can do that as well. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm always open to um, recovery calls. Um, that, that's a big part of my program. Um, so I appreciate that. I, they, they help me more than anybody else always. That's, that's the way they're designed. And that's the way it works. So, uh, but yeah, it, um, it was, um, oh, I think that slipped my mind. What was it about my family? Um, to, oh, yeah, 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 right. Having, having compassion on myself. Well, that, that shame inventory actually did a lot for that because I've got all these experiences that I'm ashamed about, you know, picking my nose when I was a, a little elementary school, school, you know, student and the teacher calls attention to it in front of the whole class, humiliating, but also shaming because I felt like I should never have done anything like that. There's no excuse for that. I must've been defective. So those kinds of experiences going through my shame um, the first day that I journaled on my shame things, uh, on each topic, I would be, it would be hard to even write about it. Um, the second day was, was pretty hard too, uh, because I felt so shameful about it. How could I possibly ever do this? How could I pick my nose in front of my friends? You could tell picking my nose was a really bad, was a very shameful, embarrassing thing. And I had no excuse for it. But day three I started to feel like, you know what? I was just a dumb kid. Kids do stupid things. Most kids pick their nose. I've seen tons of kids pick their nose. I've never thought that this is like a, a worthless kid because he did something like this. Um, and then on day five or four uh, journaling, I usually would feel a lot of compassion for myself and the ability to talk to other people about it. It, it, started to release me from the bondage that I'd kept myself in. So, yeah, um, I feel a lot of compassion for myself um, as, as a kid who was just trying to adapt to um, the circumstances, the, the environment and the people around him and, uh, and not doing very well with it, but trying something at least. And um, um, yeah, so I, I guess, Without going too long, that's that's how I'm thinking about that. Is this Frank? All right. Go ahead, Frank. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Jason. Appreciate your 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 uh, sharing your honesty and humility and 
covering a lot of ground with recovery work. The question I have is, you know, before you 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 were really good with the work. Um, um, I mean, uh, in the church and all, and then, but you were in the problem. But now that you're in recovery, and that whole issue of shame, how 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 what's your experience of praying? Uh, to your higher power and uh, doing his will today, you know, when there's been a lot of history of the shame, the bullying and, and double life and all that, you know, being church, but then doing the pornography and all. Um, that's a great question because um, my, my, try, my attempts to use religious activity and forgiveness, quote unquote, in the church uh, to um, to satisfy my guilt and my realization, or, or at least my my feeling deep down that my addiction was a problem. I used I used that you know I I used my church as a shield, um, and um, I wanted to be right instead of getting it right. I wanted to be right, um, and that meant everybody else had to be wrong, or at least a lot of people. So how do I use it today, man? I, um, I, I think like I said before, I've surrendered to God um, absolutely, 100%. doesn't mean I'm perfect by any means. I, I make lots of mistakes. I do lots of things wrong. I still yell sometimes. I don't yell as loud or as emphatically, but I still, I, you know, I, I do stuff, you know, that I shouldn't do. Um, but, um, I, you know, the, the thing that I had dreaded more than anything else I thought it would be hell on this planet was to be excommunicated from my church. And God saw fit that I would be excommunicated from my church. Um, But then he assured me that this was just a part of my path and that he didn't condemn me. It was just a part of my path. And so I'm hoping to be back in my church officially sometime, but I don't get to say when, and I don't give a crap who sees me, you know, taking the sacrament, not take, of course, not taking the sacrament. I don't care who knows my story. I don't care who thinks what, um, for the most part, you know, I mean, we're all vulnerable, but, um, I, I'm focused on God and, um, church is secondary to that. And other people are way down the list in terms of what they might think. I hope that answers that question. Thanks. Jason. Thanks. Thank you, Frank. Cindy, Sexaholic oh. Holly from New Jersey. Come on in, Cindy. Hey, thank you for your service today, Rena. And Jason, what a powerful share you provided for us today. And you've really um, just blown it out of the water as far as I'm concerned with the honesty. And I can hear the humility in your voice. And I thank you for sharing it today. I want to pose a quick question. I'll apologize in advance if it was taken during the two to three minutes I was um, had to take another call. Uh, I just wanted to know if you could elaborate at all about the healing specific to your family, your your wife and your daughter, your daughters, your children in particular would be wonderful. And thanks again for your share. I pass. Thank you so much, Cindy. this is this is a difficult thing. Um, it started with, you know, I had I had supervised visits at the home, you know, which <laughs> what is humiliating and it's uh, difficult, and they look at you funny and oh man. Um, 
but I, I decided that I was going to, and the thing is that they wouldn't let me talk to my kids about what happened. So my kids, I mean, they're all teenagers now, but they, they didn't even know why I'd been arrested. You know, so their little imaginations were going crazy. And um, when they finally let me tell them what exactly I had done, and um, it, it, was, it was like six months, eight, you know, seven months later, um, which was crazy, which anyway, you know, I, I could make comments about um, how uh, child services handles things. But, um, but um, I, I, I'm honest with them. Um, it's difficult because they, my kids don't understand fully, even though they're, you know, that they're old enough to understand some things. They don't really get this. And I mean, I still, I, the daughter of mine, that's my youngest daughter and she's 12 now, you know, she, she just the other day she came and she said, I don't feel comfortable around you because I think, you know, like, like you saw me in my shorts and you mentioned that I was wearing shorts. Um, and essentially, she was telling me, I don't want to be around you because I think you're lusting after me. Um, and um, yeah, <laughs> I was pretty much blown away by that. And, um, but I deserved it. And it made sense. And I assured her that I do not lust after her or any of her siblings, um, that that's not, in fact, what it was ever about. It was really about trying to control my lust. And when you try to control your lust so tightly without working a program, it pops out between your fingers in every different direction. And um, that was just the direction it popped out in. Um, she, I won't go into it, but she was basically there and available. And um, what I did was inexcusable, um, but it's understandable because I wouldn't let lust go in any other direction. And so it had to go somewhere because I wasn't relieving it. I wasn't working on it. Um, so, and just acknowledging where I'm wrong and apologizing to my wife finally, after all these years, I knew in my head that I had been um, insensitive and that I had um, caused trauma to her um, because of repeatedly acting out and relapsing and promising and breaking my promises. Um, I finally got it. There was one day I went to work and I've got a pretty mundane kind of job, um, which I'm actually trying to do something different, but I, I just sit there and, and do kind of a repetitive kind of thing. And I'm sitting there working and it just hit me. This is how my wife has felt for 20 something years for 23 years and I felt alone and rejected and judged and um, dismissed and misunderstood and just deeply alone and it hit me and I, I realized this is what I've done to her I have I have uh, she's she's been alone in our relationship for a long time maybe not all 20 years but maybe 10 of those years at least. And, you know, anyway, so my, my acknowledging that and sorry, and, and just telling her that I, I get it at least a little bit. Um, 
validates her in a way that no words could. And, um, and she still has problems, um, and she still gets mad at me, and I still deserve it a lot of times, but um, we're working on it, and, and uh, healing is happening. And conversations with my kids. Um, anyway, yeah, it's, 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 it's different with each one of my kids, um, and it just, I, I just have to be willing. Anyway, yeah, I hope that answers. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. I know we have more questions. We just have to take a very brief pause for announcements, and then we will continue with Q&A. Uh, Jason is going to be with us for 30 more minutes. So I'm going to um, stop the recording here and say thank you so very much to Jason. After the announcements, Q&A will continue, but that will not be recorded. So again, thank you very, very much for your service today. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.